Hello and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman and I had ice cream for lunch and it absolutely has nothing to do with the fact that I watched this episode that has ice cream in it two times right before lunch this morning. And I'm Valerie Hoagland. And Glenn, I know that what you're about to say is that you want to name me captain of the podcast. And like, I think we're going to get there. But for absolutely no reason that will be explained to you, I'm not ready. I would like to remain commander. Yeah, this is really just so that the uh, the show producers can decide to bring in a uh, a replacement co-host for season three if they uh, if they <laughs> if they want to. That would be just like them to replace me with Jason Isaacs. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that we're gonna have a a, a Vulcan bartender in the speakeasy that we run in the Jeffrey's Tubes uh, next next season. <laughs> right, we are or were technically on our way to Vulcan at some point, but enough time has passed that Stamets has missed his appointment as professor at the Vulcan Academy. So I don't know when or where we are. Yeah, right. It's possible that this Vulcan captain they went to go pick up has just gotten bored waiting for them, that he started his own speakeasy on Vulcan somewhere. Well, today we're talking about the 13th, the penultimate episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, Such Sweet Sorrow, which was written by Michelle Paradise, Jenny Lumet, and Alex Kurtzman. It was directed by Olatunde Onsun Sanmi. This really feels like the first half of a really a, a two-part finale. It ends in the middle of the action and it really feels like everything that is happening in this episode is about setting up something that's going to happen in the the next episode. I am hooked at least in that sense. I am interested in seeing how these things are going to get wrapped up, but I, I thought there were a lot of writing mistakes or storytelling mistakes in this episode. How did you feel about it? Ooh, well, I think I'm about to feel silly when you point them all out. Um, I didn't notice them. I had a great time. I really enjoyed this. Well, that's fantastic. I didn't not enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not wearing my grumpy pants today. I just think there were a lot of uh, a lot of beats that were that were missed or or bobbled might be the the metaphor that I'm I'm looking for there. But I think on that note, let's get into the scene by scene. Yeah, Glenn. Hit it. <laughs> I will gladly hit it, though. I think that is the wrong tone for how this episode actually begins uh, on Vulcan, where Sarek is staring out over Lake Ontario at dawn while he meditates. And Amanda Grayson is there to bring him his morning coffee. And he comes out of his meditation and says, and, and he says this very ominously, Michael. And I have two questions about this little scene. One, is this their backyard? And two, is this scene necessary for anything? What are we supposed to get out of this that the end of the last episode didn't already do? A pretty shot of Vulcan that sets up a tiny little thing. I don't know. I feel like personally what I was supposed to get out of this, and I, I'm so sorry, listeners must be sick of hearing it. I was just excited because I've been there with you, Glenn. I'm pretty sure we sat on those rocks that are on the far side of that shot. And I was screaming at the TV, this is Lake Ontario with a red tint on the screen, so we think it's Vulcan. Yes, it absolutely is. And it is a gorgeous shot. I don't dislike that. And and frankly, yeah, my question about whether or not this is their backyard is all about envy. I'll be honest. I want that to be my backyard. This just seemed like, to me, a very strange, uh, cold opening to this episode, because the last episode ended with tense stuff going on, ended with Discovery being chased by uh, the whole fleet of Section 31 ships and a plan to scuttle the ship. And then this episode opens up with not picking that up immediately, but with this scene that doesn't really serve a whole lot of purpose in this plot. In fact, I don't think it serves any purpose in this plot. 
I don't know if I would say it doesn't serve any purpose. So I will I will say before I kind of answer your question that it was a little confusing for me, this shot, because given that they also made Kaminar on the banks of Lake Ontario, I, I couldn't immediately tell where we were. I, I wonder if you had that same small confusion for a moment. I did. It was the tint was the only thing that actually gave it away. But yeah, they've, they've got to find a new thing to stand in for the ocean. <laughs> Right? Yeah. They should really get on that. But, you know, I love that they film in Toronto, so they don't need to move to to L.A. or anything. I'm fine with that. But to answer your question, I think it does kind of serve a purpose. And more than anything, this episode, in my opinion, is about Burnham. It's about Michael Burnham, right? She is the center of everything. That has been true of this show from day one, but it has just been more and more true of season two in particular as season two goes forward. And that really comes to play in this episode. Everything is just this tribute to Burnham and her sacrifice or martyrdom or however you want to think about it. So opening the episode with her name and with her parents that are going to come back later right like we get this is a window into why they show up later on the ship but i think it really sets us up to be told that's what we're doing here this is a michael episode yeah i think that's fair i mean it is here in large part i suspect so that when they do show up in the middle of this crisis uh we aren't all wondering what the heck is going on and like half the dialogue in that scene as well is about making sure we understand why they're there and how they got there and so on i find that unnecessary i don't need that as a as a viewer i do like your answer about uh the thematic element here that you know the first word that we're going to hear in this episode is her name and her first name in particular uh yeah that that i like quite a bit well after this very brief scene of drinking coffee in a, a gorgeous Lake Ontario morning, we do finally now pick up where we left off last time. We're on Discovery, and we get Burnham's personal log over a montage sequence here. And the, the log really just explains the plot in case someone has foolishly decided to start watching the series with this episode. But the, the visuals are, I think, really great. We see people preparing to evacuate the ship. Tilly and Saru take a few personal things from their rooms. For for Tilly, it is her favorite snow globe from her quite impressive collection of snow globes and paperweights. And for Saru, it's Serana's knife. I mean, I could see Tilly having like a paperwork organization problem, you know, and like accidentally blowing <laughs> things off the desk or I feel like she might need some paperweights and some snow globes. That makes sense for for her character. But I really enjoyed uh, this scene with Saru. I, I, I mean, I love basically every scene with Saru. I think his room is amazing. I was glad to get to see it again. And the knife has so much meaning, not only as a symbol of his love for his sister, but also I thought, again, back to Michael Burnham, of a symbol of his love for Michael, who used that knife or was about to use that knife to kill him. And the knife is right next to the the flower from his homeworld. And I actually thought that that's what he was going to pick up. For, for me, I thought the scene was kind of suggesting to us that he was making this choice. Do I take the flower or do I take the knife? I'm not sure that's really true, but it stood out to me perhaps in part just because the color of that flower is so beautiful. And it's a great contrast to this like bone white knife. It looked really gorgeous as Saru's quarters always do. Yeah, I know the knife is like when you put it in that way, like the flower versus the knife, it makes the knife seem quite ominous and villainous and, and you know, like you know, it's a, a weapon. But when I think of that knife and its meaning for him, I, I think of it as something quite delicate and beautiful and imbued with a softer meaning. So maybe that's why I wasn't setting up that choice, though. I'll say I thought that he was going to like 
I did think he was going to take some plants with him or some seeds or something because that has been so important to him that he took these seeds from his home world and kind of regrew them in his room. So if there was going to be something that he took, I thought he was going to use the knife to, you know, propagate some plants, cut off some some bits of them and take them with him. Right, because the knife is actually a, a gardening tool. That's really what it is for him. Well, while everyone else is packing up snow globes and gardening tools, Burnham is hanging out with the time crystal, and it's going to be her job to carry that over to Enterprise. Uh, Pike comes in, and she tells him that she's not sure about this plan of scuttling the ship, because if it succeeds then it means that they didn't need to go get the time crystal in the first place. But presumably, someone in the future who is behind all these red signals knows that they do need the time crystal. So this can't really be the plan that's going to work. So maybe they shouldn't be wasting time on it. Yeah, this scene felt basically entirely to me like Pike comes in and says, Burnham, don't don't do anything weird or wrong. And she goes, but what if I did? And he goes, please don't. But then he leaves her alone and she does it. Yes, immediately, right? I mean, she she relents, right? She just pack up the the crystal, but when she touches it, she has a, a vision of the very near future in which this plan does indeed go very badly, and Section Thirty One wins the day. And we're gonna see her come to accept that this vision is true pretty quickly, but. It's not clear to me in this episode if she knows that time crystals do this, right? Did Pike tell everyone about his vision in the hour or so that has passed since the previous episode, do you think? He must have. I don't think he told people about his vision, but I I would assume he has told people, like, don't touch it. It's not good to touch it because they've constructed this cage around it. Right. And I'm going to have some questions about the time crystal. I, you know, I think I'm always going to have questions about time crystals, but I definitely have some specific questions that uh, arose out of out of watching this episode several times before coming on to do the, the podcast tonight. In the meantime, while all of this has been going on, Discovery and Enterprise have rendezvoused, and there's this very cool sequence as Discovery lines up with Enterprise and Discovery deploys these evacuation corridors that are going to connect it to the Enterprise, sort of walkways with like force fields that uh, encase them. I thought it was cool. Oh, it was so beautiful. It was super cool. I also loved how uh, there was a lot of focus on Detmer's comm panel while she was uh, bringing Discovery close enough to Enterprise so that these corridors could be uh, released or, or put into use. And I thought that was so cool because we're so used in Trek to seeing someone sit at the comm and hearing maybe some buttons, but we never really see what's on the panel. Sometimes in TNG, you know, we see those weird like burnt earth tone kind of lines or whatever i just loved the visual on the uh, on the on the helm comm panel while she was navigating that was really cool for me i will say though that absolutely never in a million years would i walk across one of those corridors (laughs) like are, are you like the only thing is a force field force fields are powered by ships ships are currently being attacked by ai I am not walking across that because that is all that separates me from the vacuum of space and certain death. (laughs) I'm watching this and the whole time I'm going, they've had these the whole time. Like they could have just deployed these and people could have gone out and just had picnic lunches out there surrounded entirely by space. Come on. Why are people not doing that all the time? That's what I would do if I was the captain. We would just have these deployed always. 
That was my oh response. My God, Glenn, you, you need more fear. You need your ganglia back because that is terrifying. <laughs> also, I did make me, it was so cool. I loved seeing it. It was just a beautiful visual. They they do not go wrong with visuals on this show. It did leave me wondering why we weren't beaming people over to Enterprise because isn't that typically what we do? Yes, this is clearly a new invention for Discovery, though I have to say that it makes more sense to me logistically. How many people can you beam at a time versus this where they're pretty wide corridors and I think there were five of them. And so, yes, everyone, I think I think in terms of haste, this is a, a good way to get people off the ship very quickly. I, I will say, though, that I did not actually think that these things really would just have a force field. To me, this actually seems like a mechanical way to get people off the ship in the event that electronics and power supply or other things are failing. But this then obviously requires a power supply and electronics, things to be working. But it did look cool. It's just a really long walk. There's a lot of time for something to go wrong. It's all I'm saying. Yeah. It's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, there is that too, right? There are different schools of thought for sure. And of course, the whole reason these things are being deployed, the whole deal here, right, is that we are abandoning discovery and we're going to scuttle the ship. And Pike and Saru set up the self-destruct sequence. They don't actually start it yet because they're going to do that remotely once they get to Enterprise. And so that's where they're going now. They walk through this corridor. They walk over to Enterprise. And when they get there, the TOS theme plays and the the ship just looks really awesome. And even though it's not actually the 1960s set, this with the music, it really felt like a homecoming to me, right? It it felt like it was that set, even though it's not. And, and especially when we get to the bridge, which also looks awesome. This got every emotion flaring for me. I completely agree. It was a impeccable homage to the original series and its aesthetic, just so perfectly and appropriately updated, right? Like, it was modern. It looked like how we might design that same thing now, but it also looked so much like itself. And do not even get me started on how good these uniforms look. I think they should get rid of the Discovery uniforms and go into these Discovery redesigns of the TOS uniforms because, oh my God, did you see Pike in that thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're going to get rid of the Discovery uniforms, but I have already gotten rid of all of my own clothes and have replaced them. This is all I'm going to wear from now on. I'm just saying, like, like Pike's outfit is really tight, you know? But And it just, the way that his his lungs, right, and his pectoral muscles come through the yellow top, it really did remind me of Kirk, right? Because his tops were pretty tight, too. Oh, yeah, they were super tight. Uh, though that material seems, I think, to have ripped a lot more easily and a lot more frequently than whatever this material is. So I don't know if we're <laughs> going to be seeing Pike's bare chest in the next episode, though it's the last chance I think we're going to get. So now's the time, writers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think it would be a complete oversight to leave it out. Yeah, I mean, it's an old school Star Trek rite of passage, right? If your, if your uniform shirt isn't ripped by a giant lizard at some point, you're not doing it right. I know. That's why I schedule it in every Tuesday. They call it the Tuesday tear. <laughs> I love it. Well, as much as we like this set, Giorgio arrives and she's pretty critical of the color scheme immediately. Yeah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Giorgio, comic relief. 
you know, I, I thought it was done pretty well in this episode. They give her just a, just a few glances and cute little lines. It's not overdone. So I enjoyed it. It was funny. I laughed. Well, this is just how she makes an entrance. Like she just walks in any place and is going to be critical of, of something. Uh, I guess that's a good strategy if you want to put people off their guard and you want to feel like you're the dominant person in the room. Uh, I don't know. She's been reading some books on negging or something like that. Or maybe she wrote them, frankly. <laughs> oh, she wrote them. <laughs> she wrote them. Well, now that they're on the Enterprise Bridge, Pike orders the Discovery self-destruct countdown to start, but it doesn't work. They try to blow up the ship with torpedoes, but that doesn't work either because the Discovery shields are on somehow. And of course, this is happening because the sphere data has taken over the ship and it's protecting itself. I think we probably all saw this coming. And in this moment, Burnham has another time crystal vision here. It's really just an extended cut of what we saw previously. And this time we see that Enterprise is damaged and that the Discovery bridge crew is still on Discovery, though there's no Pike there. And Leland comes in and he kills everyone, including Giorgio, and then chokes out Burnham. And Burnham comes out of this vision and she convinces Pike that they need to try another plan and that plan is send Discovery to the future. I thought that the the filming of this scene was very tastefully done in the sense that it was very reminiscent of the kind of like PTSD flashbacks that we got with Ash in season one and it, it felt like she had seen something really traumatic and was having like flashes of it, intrusive kind of images of it. And I thought that was kind of cool, the way they decided to do the aesthetic. I also, while this scene is horrific to watch, like, again, I think because the acting is so good that, you know, the the deaths seem so genuine and, and horror-filled. It does feel like they scaled back the violence a little bit, right? We get these very short kind of phaser bursts to the chest. The scene at the end where Leland, you know, takes the phaser to to Burnham's neck basically was a lot for me. But I, I was noticing that they weren't making it, people weren't bleeding, there wasn't gore, you know, it, it felt like a change from season one. I appreciated it. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this season on the whole, it's been less violent on the whole, even the violent bits that we've gotten, but they have really toned down the the gore. And I think even just the ambient light, frankly, of the sets is raised just like a tiny bit, like 4% or something like that, which makes it all seem a little bit less ominous all the time. Uh, it makes the violence seem not necessarily cartoonish, but somehow lighter uh, on on its own. And I, I'm glad that they did that as well. And like you, I did think the vision itself was really cool, but I'm not actually sure that I like the whole idea of the the vision. And, and uh, I'll speak more about that maybe in a second, but I just have a lot of questions about how this vision is even happening, right? Like, is this really how time crystals work? Because I thought that this was Pike's special crystal that locks in a particular future just for Pike, like it was calling to him in some way in the monastery. And you know, we know that the future that Pike sees there, we know that's going to come to pass. But I think we also know, right, that what Burnham sees here, this this vision of you know, Saru and everyone else that she loves being shot up, we know that's not actually going to happen. So I'm left wondering, which is it, right? Does this thing show us definite futures or does it show us merely possible futures? I wonder if your question itself is the answer in the sense that, Maybe it is Pike's time crystal, and therefore anybody else who tries to look at it doesn't get a totally secure and truthful vision. You know, like Pike will get the truth, but if anyone else touches with it, maybe they'll get like thrown off or something. 
yeah, I just don't understand quite what the rules of the time crystals are. And and frankly, I was actually surprised that it, it was showing anybody visions at all. I also kind of wonder how she's having the vision again here while she's not touching it, or if this is our or if this is us seeing her memory, a flashback sort of like you you suggested of the vision she just had that we just didn't see completely before. I'm I'm not really sure how all of this works. And I'm gonna have even more questions about time crystals when we when they come back again in Act Three here. Well, the real thing I want to talk about here is that I don't think these visions are necessary for anything, narratively. I mean, we don't need the vision to know that the scuttling of Discovery is not going to work. We see that right away. It's already happened here in this scene. We don't need the vision to know that the stakes are high and that the odds are totally against our heroes. We know that because there are 30 ships bearing down on them. So for me... I actually think that showing us this vision actually kind of undermines and cheapens the previous episode for no purpose, because to me, it kind of breaks the the real significance of the time crystal for Pike, because if everyone's going to be having visions or if that's maybe not definitely the future or something like that, I think that kind of undermines everything that we got in the monastery. And so to me, this all just felt like a gimmick for the sake of having a, a gimmick and it, it really sucked me out of the episode i did not have this problem i wasn't worried about it i thought it was kind of cool to see what this crystal would do to others and i enjoyed the narrative of temptation that was created for uh, for the time crystal's power in this way though i do think you make a really interesting and valid point that it could have cheapened it I'm going to reserve my judgment on that until we finish the finale next week. And I think that's a fair approach. I think almost everything that is happening in this episode is really in service of the completion of the the story. So even though I'm going to have some gripes here, I may totally change my mind about all of that after the next episode. All right. Well, that is the end of the teaser. So we come back from the titles and now we are in the Enterprise conference room. Again, looks absolutely awesome. And Bernamere has an alternative plan. She wants to build another angel suit, open a time wormhole and have Discovery follow her through it into the future on autopilot, and then she will come back to the present if she can. Makes so much sense. Just like writing a morning to-do list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are a lot of complicated uh, moving parts here in this plan, and Pike is not into it. He wants to wait for the next red signal to just tell them what to do. But Spock convinces everyone, including and especially Pike, that future Burnham must be the person who is responsible for the red signals in the first place. And therefore, that means that they have to build another suit and send her into the future for that to take place. And therefore, they should execute Burnham's plan. Uh, But of course, even if we accept all of that and we're going to do this, there's still a massive problem here, which is they can't charge the time crystal without a supernova. Well, Glenn, first of all, you must be pretty happy because uh, you were right. They're going to build another suit. You wasn't that long ago that you were just like, why isn't anybody building another suit? <laughs> right. Though there actually are good reasons why they that was not their first plan. It's it's made out of some material that I think is hard to get. That's actually one of the obstacles they have to overcome here. But yeah, I'm glad they're building another suit. It does it does actually seem like the most sensible plan to me. Right. You're probably also happy though that you got an explanation of why that wasn't their first plan, right? And that's something that you say often that you just want them to say, this is why we're not doing it this way, or this is what makes us hard before we buy into whatever other ridiculous plan is happening. But so I really enjoyed a couple things about this scene. I loved this kind of uh, conference room scene that the boardroom scene or uh, situation room scene that 
you know, we're so kind of used to getting uh, from the original series and from TNG, I think, is, is where it carries the most nostalgia. But I, I also thought this did a lot to make me less mad about the whole Burnham DNA thing from before. The whole thing is just red herrings on top of red herrings. It's red herrings all the way down, I guess. But right, this does tie that up in a neat little bow for us. We were all very mad about that. And by we, I mean me, right? Very mad about that just a few episodes ago. But the whole thing actually had a purpose uh, the whole time. It was smoke and mirrors to get us to think that Burnham was not actually time traveling. But in fact, she is about to. Yeah, and you were not the only one upset. The whole internet was pretty confused and upset about this. And and there was a lot of conversation about how the science of this might actually work and whether or not it was a cop-out. So you weren't alone in that feeling. But this almost, it felt like a gotcha moment to me. Like the writers were like, ha-ha, like made, made you think that it wasn't her, but it was. And I kind of enjoyed that. I think it's a little fun sometimes to to come from that like high and mighty position and then be like, oh. They had me. I I think I said out loud, I should have seen this coming, you know, and that's kind of like a a fun type of frustration or either that or I'm very odd. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, this is what this is what people go to mystery novels for, right, is the frustration of trying to trying to figure out who done it, being so certain you had the right answer and then realizing that uh, you've been misled in some way. I think there's a real satisfaction for that. I mean, there's an entire genre of the publishing industry and uh, almost every primetime TV show is kind of built on exactly this kind of expectation of. of, of Ah, okay. So So it's not just me. It's not just you. I think it is literally millions of people. uh, You're you're. In, in good company for sure we get some jokes in this scene too with uh Giorgio, of course having the easy and obvious solution to this problem which is just to go blow up a star and capture its energy never mind the fact that that will kill trillions of people within a dozen light years of it and pike says something that i think all people especially perhaps teachers want to say from time to time which is that sometimes there are just stupid ideas I laughed at this. I thought this was really good because it wasn't just Giorgio being annoying. It was people calling her on it in the show, right? <laughs> yes. And I love when we get that kind of infusion. I, I do think it is a a very fun layer of humor, that kind of meta layer of humor inside the show where the characters are saying what we're thinking. Well, this conversation is interrupted by the appearance of yet another red signal. And this time, the signal is taking them to Zahia, which is the planet that we saw in the Tilly Focus short track episode, Runaway. And Tilly's pretty psyched about this. She's pretty psyched to see Poe again. And she brings everyone up to speed about the whole recrystallizing dilithium business that was at the heart of that episode. And this scene then ends with Pike wondering why the signal has brought them to this particular place. I thought that the Poe take two here in season two of Discovery was so much better for me than Runaway. Runaway was my least favorite short trek. I thought it was super fast-paced. I had a really hard time following what was going on. And it seems like it was there to build, you know, to this moment, much like the Brightest Star, Saru's short trek, uh, was building a lot of moments that were incredibly important for this season of the show. I really enjoyed Poe this time around. I thought she was really fun and smart. I loved the female friendship between Tilly and Poe and that they were kind of just running the show. I love that Tig Notaro loves her. So that's a win in my book. What really comes to mind, though, for me with, with Poe being back, and I assume we'll, we'll talk about this as the episode goes on, Glenn, is that 
it seems like all of the short treks have something to do with season two. Maybe not mud, because that's just a fun one-off that almost ties back into season one instead of forward into season two. But this tells me that if Kaminar's been important and if Poe's been important, then Calypso is going to be a little important. Yeah, and we are going to get some clear indications, I think, in this episode that that's going to be true. Before we get there, we need to take a little detour into engineering where Stamets and Colbert finally are going to talk about their breakup. No, they're not. They are not. (laughs) This is not a talk. This is avoiding a talk. I'm very upset, Glenn. This is not an actual conversation. This is two characters not being written in a way that shows honest communication. But I, I'll let you keep going. I agree with you. And they both try to start at the, you know, the same time. And Colber says, no, you go first. So Stamets goes first. And what he says is that after this adventure, he's going to take some time off from Starfleet and he's going to move on with his life. And Colber responds to this news positively, right? They, they both wish happiness to each other. But all he really says about his future plans are that he's going over to Enterprise right now. And I definitely had the impression here that he went into this conversation with the intention of talking about getting back together, at, at the very least, because Cornwell and Gent Reno told him to. But because Stamets went first and seems to have moved on, he's decided just not to say any of that, right? Am I, am I crazy? Or is that what you thought was going on here, too? That's exactly what I thought was happening. And I find it so frustrating because this show can do relationship communication better than that. We've seen it happen with Michael and Tyler. We've seen it happen with, you know, captains and their crew and friends, right? Between Michael and Tilly, when Tilly was hiding what was going on with May in her mind. This show can write communication better. This feels like a tired trope to me. I completely Agree. If there's anything in this episode that upset me, it was that. And not just because I want them to get back together, but at the very least, if they're going to break up, if they're going to give us a breakup on this show between these two characters that so many people are invested in, not only because we like them, but because they're the first gay couple in Star Trek history, then give us a real conversation. Don't give us one with these kind of teenage antics of, oh, I wanted to say that, but then I wasn't sure. And then he said first, so I guess I didn't say how I really felt. Two people that are adults and who've been through everything that they've been through would have a real conversation. And nothing in this scene is really going to come back in this episode. And I know I keep saying that it seems like a lot of what's happening here is in service of the next episode, the second part of this two-part finale. But a lot of this is actually in service of season three. A lot of what's going on here is getting ready to tie up loose ends, give us uh, an ending uh, in the next episode, an ending to the season that sets up season three, that tells us who's coming back and who isn't. And because nothing here matters emotionally for these characters later in this episode, and seemingly this is just to let us know that they're not going to be a couple anymore, this just feels like the scene exists only so that we get it, so that we get it that one of them's not actually coming back for season three. I, I mean, that makes me mad too. Which one of them's not coming back? Are they both not coming back? I think they should both come back. I think they should have a real conversation. I think they should get back together. And I'm I'm having a lot of emotions about it. 
I think it's a poorly executed scene, right? If its whole if its sole purpose is to set up stories to come, it, it maybe doesn't really need to be here. But even if it did, there was a way better way to to write this scene, a way better way than to have Colbert just shrug his shoulders and mope off as if we've not seen him uh, take firm stances on things to Paul Stamets all the time. You know, I really don't think that they're going to be able to resolve this these issues or, um, you know, help me with any of these grievances in, in one episode's time. And, and if they do, kudos to them. I would love to see that. But I just, looking back over this season, I think they've just, they shortchanged these characters, right? And they could have done better. Colbert communicates with two people who aren't Stamets. That's like the only time we get Colbert giving honest communication. Stamets doesn't really talk to anybody about how he's feeling ever. And I don't know. I I, I just feel like these characters got a little bit screwed this season by, by the other story arcs and by some of the writing. I even commented as I was watching that it feels like all of the good writers went to write Pike's character and completely left Colbert and Stamets behind. And this is disappointing because we're invested in this couple. This is disappointed because we like these characters, but it's also disappointing because everybody was pretty pissed that they killed Colbert at the end of last season, that they destroyed this queer relationship and it feels like they're doing it again. I like your characterization that they gave all the good writers over to developing Pike and writing lines for Anson Mount. This is a this is a topic that we're going to have to address in our in our wrap up episode. But it's going to come back for me later in a, another grievance that I have about uh, about this episode, or really just a, a critique of the way that the writers are trying to execute some of their story beats later in this episode. But for now, we should get back to Poe, who beams over to Discovery. And and this is where Tilly has some spumati ice cream for her. Of course, now we're doing this right around dinner time, So it's just going to be all ice cream for me today. Uh, it's fine. It's going to be fine. Poe is brought up to speed, and she says that she can use her dilithium recrystallizer to power up the time crystal. She can use it, she says, to simulate a supernova. So that problem is solved. And I have to say, something I really like about this scene is that we have two young women, Poe and Tilly, being really excited about science here. I mean, just just like giddy and with enthusiasm about it. I like that as an example, as a pair of role models. It made me feel good. Yeah, especially two young women having this conversation, right? I thought the scene was really fun. And then, you know, Tig steps in, Jet, I guess we should call her by her actual character's name, and stands up for her. I thought it was real cute. I really enjoyed it. And there are more Giorgio funny beats here, too, where the ice cream is referred to as disgusting goo. Uh, yeah, this was a great scene. A lot of energy, a lot of humor in this scene. But even though Poe can make this happen, she can get the time crystal charged, the the, the plot's really going to hinge on the fact that there is going to be a price for this. Uh, two prices, really. First, the spore drive will have to be shut down for 12 hours. And so this means that Discovery totally going to be a sitting duck, right? They're not going to be able to escape the Section 31 ships. And also on top of this, and, and really more urgently, I think, for this episode, the crystal will only work for a one-way trip. So they can power up the crystal, but Burnham is going to be trapped in the future. She will not be able to get back. Season three of Star Trek Discovery. None of the characters are the same. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, we might be setting up for that. I have so much speculation about what season three is going to be like based on things happening in this episode. Uh, and in fact, we, we kind of get a moment here in the next scene where just very quickly on the Discovery Bridge, Pike and Burnham inform the bridge crew what's going on. And Burnham here makes a goodbye speech, right? Now that she knows she's never going to see any of these people again, she is saying farewell to them. Did this speech work for you? Yeah, I, I, I think so. It was um, it wasn't a Pike level speech. <laughs> um, it was short and sweet and honest, and that felt pretty authentic to kind of the growth narrative of this character. I will say, I think I was adding a lot of information to this scene because I listened to Anson Mount's two part interview on his podcast with Ethan Peck and. In that two-parter, he plays a recording of Ethan Peck giving his speech on his last day of the Discovery set to the crew. And I gotta tell you, it's way better than this one. <laughs> but I was thinking of of how genuinely emotional and emotive Ethan Peck sounded when he gave that speech. And so maybe what I was thinking about while this scene was happening was less exactly what Burnham was saying and more that it really does feel like at least the actors on this show really are a family. I think we're actually going to see some of that in a, in a later scene. And I'm looking forward to talking about that. This speech didn't work awesomely for me either i have some critiques of it but they're kind of wrapped up in some critiques i'm going to want to bring up later so maybe i'll save them for when we get there and we can just get right to engineering now where poe and tilly are charging up the time crystal and poe here just says that she's going to stay on board discovery for the duration of this adventure so that she can keep helping there's no consequence at all to this in this episode but i imagine that we'll get a payoff for this in the finale but here's a place where i'm thinking wait is poe going to be in season three she going to be a main cast member in season three? Oh, i don't think so i don't know why i have such a strong gut reaction to that but i really just don't feel like it's going to be true she's not going to leave her planet for that long doesn't seem reasonable to me but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think the answer to that question is going to hinge on whether or not she's aware of everything that some of the other characters are aware of uh, when we get to the end of Act 3 here in this episode. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting your take on that. We've had one goodbye speech already. We've had Michael's goodbye speech to the bridge crew, but we have more goodbyes in store for Michael. So we're going to get a pair of goodbye scenes right now. And the first of these is a walk and talk with Giorgio. And Giorgio thinks that Burnham has a martyr complex and that her plan is stupid and she doesn't want her to do it. I'm not sure Giorgio is wrong about any of this, actually. <laughs> yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say, well, she's not wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, this is the second time where we're being explicitly reminded uh first by spock and now by Giorgio, that uh burnham thinks everything is about her kind of is about her though and to be fair the two characters that say that to her kind of are just trying to hurt her and manipulate her into loving them more <laughs> <laughs> Yes, there is some manipulation going on in these relationships, for sure. The The second scene here, the second goodbye scene is with Sarek and Amanda. Her 
adoptive parents who have shown up because of what Sarek learned while he was meditating on the beach at the, the very top of the episode. So they're also here to say goodbye. They seem to know exactly what's up. Uh, they are not here to stop her. They are here to say goodbye. And Burnham says that she loves them and that she is grateful for them, grateful that they took her in and and kept her and raised her even when she was being a brat of uh, of a child. And this scene ends with Sarek asking for forgiveness for his failures, is what he says, for his failures. And he refers here even to the fact that Spock has alienated himself from him, right? Sarek knows that he made that series of terrible choices trying to plan their lives for them and favoring one of them over the other and not maybe really knowing them for themselves. And he's asking for forgiveness. Oh, okay. I have some thoughts about this scene. And... I think there are going to be some hot takes. I wonder if you'll agree. Um, so first of all, I think that what you just said about the meaning behind Sarek's words was really lovely and not explicit. And the scene would have benefited from it being a little bit more explicit because when I was watching it, I took that to mean, hey, guys, we just want to let you know that we understand there was that episode in TOS that said Spock and Sarek never really hang out and uh, wanted to make sure you know that we know that and uh, they don't hang out. Okay? I don't disagree. I actually do think that's a big part of why that line is here because at this moment we're thinking, oh, wait, like, is he going to go talk to Spock now? Are they going to see Spock? Uh, but no, he's not. He's, he says he's going to respect Spock's wishes. And yeah, we do need to be reminded of that, I guess, right? Because we would be, we would all be up in arms otherwise, I suppose. <laughs> Right. I, you know, I say, like, I get annoyed, like, oh, I can't believe that they solved the problem I had. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, there there was something that I really enjoyed in this scene was uh, part of Sarek saying, you know, my failures as a father. And then he says as a husband, he's, I think he says, and quite possibly as a husband. Uh, and I love that Amanda jokes with him here. And it's like, well, it's more like probably. Yeah, Amanda Grayson. Always awesome. Always awesome. Uh, I'm never unhappy to see her in an episode, though I'm not sure that we needed this scene in this episode. It raised a lot of questions for me. I guess we know that Sarek is aware that this is happening because of Vulcan mysticism stuff, but Sarek is a high-ranking member of the Federation government, so if he knows all, that all of this is going on, why is he not taking some kind of action, right? Why are and, 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 you know, especially considering that they have gotten here on a regular old spaceship. So other regular old spaceships could get here too. So like, why is the whole fleet not here to just protect them from section 31 instead of Sarek just saying, well, I guess we better go say goodbye to our daughter who's essentially from our perspective about to commit a self-sacrificing heroic suicide. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I'm glad you asked it because it is kind of like, why aren't we all going to battle over this? Why is this Discovery's problem? You know, we know that other ships in the fleet are trying to protect themselves, but what are other ships doing? Because, and again, you might have forgotten, all sentient life in the galaxy is at stake. So you would think they would be putting a little bit more more manpower behind this whole thing. Um Maybe that has something to do with being a little bit reticent after this, you know, war that we had had last season. I appreciated uh, the way this scene rounded out Sarek's journey 
as like a dad, right? He's a little bit of a better dad now than he was in season one. And and that was cool to see. They're connected. They care. Burnham seems to have reached a place of love instead of a place of pain. She can communicate her feelings, right? We are being shown a lot of really important growth in this scene. Also, I was really bored. I was really bored. (laughs) I was like, okay, okay, blah, blah, blah. That's how I felt watching this scene. I don't know if that makes me a little heartless. I guess our listeners will have to tell me. This is literally already the third goodbye scene that we've had with Michael. So I think you just run out of steam with these for uh, you know after after a while you know you get you get farewell fatigue at, at at some point and i think that's one of the real missteps here in the storytelling is telling us the same exact story giving us the same exact plot moment over and over and over again in this episode and we're not actually done with it yet we're going to get more of it that is a very fair point it's also worth kind of bringing up that I tend to not love the slow scenes when they last a long time. Maybe that's just, you know, a millennial attention span problem. But, you know, I like a lot of slow stuff. I love TOS. The pace of TOS, even the pace of TNG is quite slow by contemporary standards. But there's just something about the the jumping that Discovery does between really fast-paced scenes and then really slow scenes. And, and the flow of episodes gets interrupted, especially when it's redundant, as you pointed out. Well, let's go ahead and end your pain here, then. I will I will take your pain from you, Valerie, and move us along. So now that Burnham has said goodbye to all of her parental figures here, right? Her adoptive parents and then Mirror Giorgio, who is some kind of stand-in for regular Giorgio, who was kind of a mother figure as well. Now that she's done all of that, she needs to get ready for business. And so she watches her mother's instructional video about how to use the time travel <laughs> Red Angel suit <laughs> Very helpful. How convenient. (laughs) Yes. Very thoughtful. Very helpful of her mother. Uh, We get just enough of it to know that it's hard and that it's going to be dangerous before Michael Burnham is summoned to the bridge. But of course, this summons is a ruse. Her friends are all in the hallway because they're not going to let her go to the future alone. They're going with her. And let's just run through who all is here, because it is actually a lot of people. So there's the whole bridge crew, including Saru. Also, Nilsson, who has just replaced Arium. And and by the way, I I don't think I realized it until this episode, but that is Sarah Mitch playing Nilsson, who is the same actress who was playing Arium. Yes, I think I can't remember, Glenn, if we put this on air or if we ended up cutting it. But when we were talking about the Arium focused episode, I think I asked you, that's not the actress that plays Arium, is it? And you were like, no, no, no. I looked it up. It was. And and then I and then I made this discovery that they brought in a, an actress just for that Arium episode, but that in season one, this was the same actress. Yeah, I guess she she gets more speaking time here in in this scene or in this episode. And Sarah Mitch is an actress who played in in The Expanse. So as soon as she really, I don't know, said three sentences in a row, I realized that that's who that was. Again, I just really had kind of missed all of the the finagling of the the actors uh, with the Arium business. And I do also think that when Pike gives his goodbye speech, they're kind of winking at us, right? They're making a little comment to us when he says, and Nilsson, you've just done such a great job picking up right where Arium left off, right? <laughs> like that, 
That's for us. Yeah. And I was glad that I realized it before we got to that scene so that I could laugh at that. I could realize that we were kind of being winked at and, and find it, and, you know, you know, and find the, find the joy in that scene. Well, Spock and Tyler are also here and, and so are Jet Reno and Stamets. And Burnham protests that, you know, they can't come with her, but they protest right back. And this scene is supposed to be touching, right? These people not letting their friend go off on this adventure alone. But this scene really did not work for me. But I I wonder how you felt about it. I'm of a couple minds here. So on the one hand, I was kind of comforted by this scene because before it, it seemed possible to me that Sonequa Martin-Green was leaving the show. (laughs) Like, I don't know. She's relatively famous. She could leave. People leave this show all the time and, and, you know, you don't necessarily see it coming unless I guess it's Jason Isaacs, but having everybody come with her was a nice little signal to me that we're all going to be fine. Like, it can't be that all of these characters aren't coming back from the future. Right. Um, so I enjoyed that aspect of it. And it's always fun when like the Scooby gang gets together and stands together and and loves one another. So I I appreciated that aspect of it. And I did really buy into and love the speech that Saru gives where he says, look, we joined Starfleet. Our families knew this was a thing that could happen. Like, it was really in this theme kind of that runs through the season that I think is impeccably done because I am not a um, service oriented person in the sense of like a military, but I am a very service oriented person in the sense of like the greater good. And, you know, that's part of me being a social worker. So this narrative that that we got with Pike's speech in the last episode that we get from Saru here was really heartwarming to me, actually. It is a good speech. It just did not work for me. And the, the reason it didn't work for me is mostly because there's no plot reason for this to happen. Burnham doesn't need them to come with her. So the, the whole thing is totally contrived because Burnham's not actually going to be in any danger when she makes this time jump. I mean, she might be because the, the suit might not work well or something like that, but she's not going into danger. She's not jumping into danger. She's jumping out of danger. That's the whole point of the plot. They have found a safe spot to go hide Discovery in. So there's no danger. And on top of that, we've been told that she is going to end up at Terra Elysium in the future, where she's just going to continue living with the descendants of the people we met back in episode two. So it's not even like she's going to be lonely or without a community or without a, a, a purpose, right? She's not exiling herself to some desert island or something like that. So she's going to be fine. There's nothing that they are going to do. Like they don't have an actual purpose in going with her. Other than that, this is a gesture to say that they will miss her, that they love her, that they do, that they care about her. And so it just doesn't work for me because there's no actual real consequence. There's no real point for them to, to be going. Also, and of course, really part of this is that we've been told that the ship can follow her through the wormhole on autopilot. So they don't even need to pilot the ship or something like that. But it's presented as if it is some kind of heroic sacrifice when really they're all just deciding to quit Starfleet and go retire to the non-technology commune on Terralysium. And <laughs> this could, you know, this sounds great to me. Like, I want to go live there too, if I could do that, right? And I think all of this could actually be 
be quite easily fixed by making this choice that they're making, making that choice necessary in some way, like have the autopilot break and then have these people volunteer to go with her and not because, you know, they want to, but because it's their duty, because this is a sacrifice they have to make. I hear you have a lot of feelings about this. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that those are fair points. You know, the first thing I'm thinking of is that when it comes to a romantic scene, you are all about it and I reject it. But when it comes to like a friendship scene, we have the opposite problem. And I feel a little bit like if I had to time travel into the future, you wouldn't come with me, which is making me a little sad. Well, if you were time traveling into the future to go live in some really awesome place, some like environmental paradise that is free from the the creeping insidious threat of global capitalism, uh, that is uh, safe from Section 31, and there's no danger of any sorts, and you don't need me to help you with anything, I might stay here with my wife. I need you to help me with friendship. I mean, I think that's the whole point of this scene is that... They're doing this for no other reason than they want to live the rest of their lives stranded in time with her more than they want to live the rest of their lives in their present, in their narrative without her. That's it. That's all it is. It doesn't need other reasons. That's its power. Yeah, I don't buy that that's even actually their motivation at all. Like, I don't believe that Nilsson is motivated by that. We've never even seen her and Burnham have a conversation. Like, we don't know. We are never shown that there is this bond necessarily between all of them. I can get that maybe for some of the characters. But even if that is true, even the thing that Saru is saying here about duty or things that we have heard Saru say before about duty, about we are Starfleet, Burnham is going to go off into the future and she's going to take the discovery with her. Enterprise is still going to be here in this spot, having to fight alone against the Section 31 ships. You don't think Stamets has something he can do for that? Jet Reno, Saru, like they're not helpful in that. They have other comrades, other friends in Starfleet right now who actually need them to stay here and fight that battle with them. They're fleeing that battle. Yeah, but friendship. Right. Yeah, exactly. You're our- I don't know. I think we just wanted everybody to stand around and sacrifice themselves all the everything. This is just like a I am Spartacus scene, you know, and we like those. I love those scenes. I love those scenes. This one was unmotivated and it didn't have to be. So this is this is really one of my chief uh, complaints or critiques of this episode. This is just a storytelling misstep here. You just needed it to have a purpose. That was, that was all that all that this scene needed was for it to be for a reason. I feel as if I've made my voice heard. I also hear you, Glenn. And I support you even if you would not time travel with me. Uh, this is act one in a, our story that is definitely going to end with you time traveling and me having to come with you. All right. I think we could safely move on from this. This is a conversation I would love to continue having on the forums with people as well. And of course, I said previously that Tyler is here in this group. He is a part of this speech that he's going to go to the future with her. But actually, he's not. So everyone else runs off and Tyler grabs Michael and they uh, go find an absolutely beautiful window to have a very romantic moment. And he explains that he's going to stay here to deal with Section 31 from the inside. And so they have a very kissy and very tearful goodbye. Ooh, okay. I hated this thing. <laughs> I lo- I loved the part where they have so much love for one another. I loved the the walk away, the run back kiss. We all saw it coming. We all loved it anyway. I just thought after an entire season of Burnham being like, dude, this Section 31 thing is very morally questionable. 
please stop that this like weird kind of savior speech about how he needs to stay behind to save it from the inside. I don't know. I was kind of thinking about SLC punk, which is something that was a big part of of my teenage years where Matthew Lillard's dad uh, tells him, I didn't sell out, son. I bought in. That's exactly what this sounds like. Also, Tyler's like the lowest ranking person in Section 31. I don't know how he thinks he's going to do anything from the inside except like mop the floors or something. I mean, that's your military experience talking in, in this world because he's friends with Giorgio now and uh, Leland Bot, I guess, will hopefully be gone if everything goes well. Tyler is the second in command or something. Right. It's, it's because he's very handsome and is therefore the lead of the show. So the fact that they keep giving him this enlisted rank for some reason. Uh, That's not going to matter. Don't worry about that. He's important and high ranking somehow. But this really serves to wrap up Tyler. And again, this is really all positioning, I think, for things to come. Season three of this show, first season of the Section 31 show as well. But now it is time for another montage sequence as our characters all write farewell letters to people here in the present. Saru, of course, is going to write a letter to his sister, Serana, and Tilly has to write a letter to her mother. I quite enjoy the way that Tilly is dictating this letter to her mother. We get Awoshikin writing a letter to her Luddite parents, and these are all relationships that we've gotten some of before, some of them more than others. Uh, We've also got Stamets here writing to his sibling, and I might be wrong, but I don't think we knew about this relationship before. And and we also get a sense of his relationship with his parents in this letter that was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really fun. I think I, it made me uh, relate to Stamets even more than, than I had before, which was already quite a bit, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was quite touching. And finally, we have Detmer, who is dictating a letter to Tazzy, who is her rock and her best friend and who was with her in some capacity during her training. Presumably, this is someone that she knew at the Academy. I loved this. I loved the inclusion of a female friendship as someone you would would write this kind of final letter to. I, I assume they are all writing multiple letters to multiple people. But, you know, they made choices in this montage to show us what different kinds of relationships can be important. And I really enjoyed the inclusion of female friendship as as one of them. I will say, though, that it was hard for me to take this scene seriously, not because it was poorly acted or poorly shot or poorly written. All of those things were pretty great in my books. I just couldn't stop thinking about a whiny, whiny Malcolm from Enterprise (laughs) writing all of those letters when he's stuck on the shuttle with Trip. I like the particulars of these scenes. In fact, for many of the reasons that you just outlined, and I did actually particularly like the the Detmer information that we that we get here. But the sequence did not work for me the whole, as a whole. And I think for me, it was because this type of scene, this kind of characters going off to say goodbye to their own loved ones. This type of scene is pretty classic in TV, but it only works if we, the audience, feel like we're the ones who are actually saying goodbye to the characters on the screen, these characters that we're invested in. And as you have alluded to and pointed out several times already, in this case, we know this isn't the series finale. We know that we aren't losing all of these characters. We know that we're going to see almost all of them, maybe literally all of them, again, in just nine months. We know that nothing is at stake and that we aren't actually saying goodbye. So it was hard for me to take this seriously. I don't know. As you were talking... 
it made me wonder, what if season three, right? What if the finale is like they send the ship to the future, everybody abandons it, that's how we get Calypso, they all go live on Terralysium, everything's fine, and season three is actually just a TOS reboot with Pike on the Enterprise. Oh, don't think I didn't have that thought several times while watching this episode. I did think that. I wondered, I was like, wait, during this sequence, I did start to wonder that. Are we really saying goodbye to these characters? And yeah, we're actually going to be tricked here into getting the Pike show. Uh I'm not sure I would feel bad about that, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. In fact, I think what's happening here is that we are getting set up to have Detmer and Owo be bigger characters than they have been so far. We might actually be getting set up to have season three in that future we saw in Calypso in some in some way, which I also wouldn't be opposed to. But I think these are going to be our characters. Well, at this point, I have actually lost track of how many farewells we have had uh, and how many speeches we've had so far in this episode. But as we are nearing the end now, we get one that really, really does actually work for me. And this is Pike's farewell speech to the Discovery Bridge crew. He is back in that yellow Enterprise uniform that you love so much. And he explains what each of them, each of these characters means to him. And this scene ends with a real wide shot, a very long hold on this wide shot of Pike on the bridge with swelling music, with music just you know, rising up behind him. And I really felt that this probably was Anson Mount's last scene on the Discovery set. And that does make me sad because I'm really quite invested in the Pike character in ways that I'm not invested in characters we've known for longer. I know. It's going to be a huge loss. Pike was hands down for me the best part of season two. I think you agree. Um, And I I would hazard a guess that a lot of people do as well. And and Anson Mount's acting has been impeccable. He's really just brought to life and fully embodied and enriched and enlivened this kind of throwaway nothing character from before. It's amazing what's been done. There were parts of the speech that fell a little flat for me, like uh, how, you know, he said that everybody was so special, but then a couple people got these like totally non-special comments because we don't know anything about them. They're <laughs> right. just pretty and they stand on the bridge. I didn't love that. It got in the way of the meaning for me. But I did love looking at him, did love his speech in general. And uh, yeah, this was heart-wrenching for me. This was emotional, not only because we're losing Pike, but because we know and Pike knows what lies ahead. These characters, Spock being an exception, aren't really going to see each other again, and he's going off to meet his tragic fate. Yeah, some of these characters probably don't feel too good about what Captain Pike had to say about them or all that he had to say about them. But when he says to Spock, there are no words, oh, that that was really moving to me. Of course, of course. And, and I think it is. And I, I mentioned this a couple of times already, extra moving because it does seem that that the actors have made a genuine connection, right? Like, like I think there is some real friendship and love behind this scene um, and, and behind these relationships. It just adds so much. And I imagine it was very meaningful for Ethan Peck to get to play this character as, you know, it would be for anyone who wanted to do it responsibly. I will say though that I got a little distracted when they cut to Spock because it took me this long to realize he's got a totally different haircut. We've moved away from the one haircut Vulcan model. Right. What's going on with Spock's uh, appearance right now is a little bit bizarre to me. We 
the idea here, right, is that he's a, a refugee. He's fleeing the the police after you know, breaking out of the mental hospital and was accused of murder. So he's not been wearing a uniform, but he's been cleared of all of those charges and is still not wearing the uniform and hasn't gotten a haircut or shaved. He hasn't gone back to looking like the Spock that we all know and recognize for reasons that are not at all clear in the show. I hadn't even noticed the uniform thing. That's such a good point. Do you think he showered at all this season? Yeah, I think maybe he hasn't changed back into his uniform because he's like stuck in this leather thing like the zipper is caught. So maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) Really adds another layer of richness to the whole season for me, Glenn. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that layer is richness, but... uh... All right. Well, we we also get, I think, some glimpses of season three here, as you alluded to at the top of the show. Pike wants to make Saru the captain, but Saru wants him to hold off. He says, you know, there's well, we'll have time to figure out this captain business later. This is just a tease to all of us who have been speculating that Saru is going to be the captain in season three. Uh, we are, of course, still presumably waiting to pick up this Vulcan captain. Who knows what's going to happen with that? But it's also pretty clear that Saru is still actually in charge around here. And also here, Nan has decided to go with them all to the future. So it just seems like an announcement that Nan is going to be a main cast member for season three as well. Yeah, that part was weird for me. I was like, Nan, be quiet. Like, I'm not invested in you. (laughs) Nothing has happened this season that makes you interesting (laughs) to me. And you didn't announce yourself earlier do you need some attention? That's kind of what this felt like. Yeah, this really felt pretty shoehorned in. I mean, it just it's like a flag just saying, yep, Nan's going to be a main character. So let's watch her here in the finale. Meh. I don't know. They're going to have to sell me on Nan. I am actually interested in her character, or, or at least the potential for her character. So I will be excited if she gets quite a bit of screen time in season three. But that's all speculation. Maybe we'll we'll save some more of that for our wrap-up episode in, in two weeks. So at this point, we are just about ready to travel to the future, except that the time crystal isn't actually charged yet. And they've only got a few minutes before the Section 31 ships arrive. So... Stamets, Reno, and Tilly are in engineering where they're working on that problem. And the issue here is the protective cage that they have around the time crystal. But if they take it out, it will subject anyone nearby to time visions, which will be bad for them. It's not actually clear how this will be bad, but it seems to be something that everyone knows about. It's also weird because Burdum had to touch it to get the vision in the beginning of the episode. So something is timey-wimey here. Yeah, I'm not sure that the rules for the time crystals are are all that consistent. But in any case, the, the problem is, right, that it's going to be dangerous for people to be in this room if they want to take the steps to get the thing charged on time. So Reno says that she will stay alone with the crystal. She'll subject herself to these harmful visions in order to get this thing powered up. And... Obviously, this is supposed to be something of a Wrath of Khan level sacrifice, but I found it tough to buy into that because we don't actually know what the consequences will be of hanging around the the time visions, right? Like we actually get that going into the warp field, radiation is going to kill a person. In part, we get that because characters are actually shouting that at Spock as he's going to do that in Wrath of Khan. Here, the consequences are totally vague. So it was hard to buy into the seriousness of this. Yeah, it seemed like maybe it was just an unpleasant psychological experience, or maybe because they don't know what what will be told to them with these time visions, it could be a concern of like, 
you don't want to know what happens to you. Maybe you're going to learn how you die. Maybe you're going to learn something horrible about your future. And, you know, that in and of itself is a, is kind of destructive and dangerous information, right? Those are things we ought not to know um, that are, are better left to kind of to, to fate. And I will agree that I, I found it a little bit hard to follow, but that was because a lot of the scenes in this episode that are doing the explanation move quite quickly. I found myself pausing and rewinding quite a few times. And I think part of it is the unknown, right, uh, of what are we going to be told and should we know what, what fate has in store for us, which brings up a good point. Is it there is a lot of fate stuff and destiny and spirituality in this episode, too. So that's going to be a big topic in our season two roundup, as you mentioned, coming up in two weeks. But I appreciate that Jet Reno gets to share kind of this vision that Burnham had. I think it's really interesting that she has the same vision that Burnham had because Pike touched this crystal and had a different one. So what does that mean? Does it mean that Burnham and Jet Reno are connected somehow? Does it mean that this is some sort of decoy vision that people are getting because they're not Pike? I have quite a few questions there. But I did appreciate that somebody else saw what Burnham saw. And I'm left wondering, why hasn't Burnham told anybody that she saw this? Right. That was why I was asking at the top of the show if Pike had explained that he had a vision, because the fact that Burnham doesn't come clean with this indicates that Pike hasn't explained this and that Burnham doesn't actually know that this is a thing that time crystals do. She thinks something weird just happened to her and that maybe no one will believe that it happened to her. And so she offers a different type of explanation. But then now we're in this scene and it sounds like everybody knows all about visions. And then, yeah, Jet Reno has the exact same vision that Burnham had. I don't think it's particularly consistent. I don't think that it's been well thought out. Again, I will reserve full judgment for part two of the finale, where I think a few of these things are going to come back. On the topic of having the same vision, if the time crystals work in such a way that what they do is show you the worst thing in your future, which seemingly is what happened with Pike, then... Burnham and Jet Reno are seeing the worst thing in their very near future, which is like 90 minutes, maybe 20 minutes left of their future. And it's everybody getting shot up by Leland, right? So it makes sense that they would see the same thing because they are very shortly about to go through that same experience. They're about to go through that experience together, if that is what the crystals show people. Right, but Pike wasn't shown an experience that he's about to go through with all the other people that are around him. Was Pike just shown the next horrific experience? Is that what a time crystal does? It shows you the nearest horrible experience to you. I think it's probably the most horrific thing that's going to happen to you. But because these people only have 20 minutes left, there aren't a lot of options. (laughs) I guess that's a really good point. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. They line up. They seem to, they're actually going to be the same thing here. Uh, I would love to talk more about time crystals on the forum. So if if you listeners have thoughts, please come let us know. Have this conversation with me. I love talking the metaphysics of MacGuffins in science fiction stories. It's really like what I live for. So I'd be excited to do that. But I think we can carry on with the episode here. So Pike and Tyler beam back to Enterprise, though Tyler is going to go off on a secret mission of his own, which I guess. We'll come back in the the next episode. We don't know quite what it's going to be. And Giorgio is in this scene too, though she is staying on Discovery. And 
As Pike beams away, she tells him that she's from the Mirror Universe, and he indicates that he's known that all along. And this is supposed to be a a funny and a cute moment, except that I actually forgot he didn't officially know that because the writers have done, they've done nothing with that relationship since the third or fourth episode. Totally forgot. Yeah, I, um, I understood that this was funny and I liked that Pike winked and I want him to wink at me all the time. I don't know. I didn't think this was that great. I was left a little confused. This feels like this is supposed to be the the final beat or final moment in some tension that they've had for like the whole season. Uh, But there that hasn't been happening. There hasn't been anything. There hasn't been anything like that. Like this would make sense, actually, if they'd had some kind of like romantic encounter or something based on the fact that he thinks that she's the same person he went to the academy with or whatever. And then it turns out that's not true. But then actually he figured it out the whole time or something. But we don't see any of that. It was also incredibly obvious. <laughs> Nobody from this universe acts like that, except, I guess, I don't know, maybe Leland. She is way over the top, Rich. She has that metaphorical mustache. She is always twirling it. She definitely is not the Philippa Giorgio that he knew prior to this. Also, that Giorgio liked the color orange on the bridge. So, you know, that's a real tell right there. All right. Well, we are at the end of this episode now. The Section 31 ships arrive and on Enterprise, Pike orders the shields raised and on Discovery. At the same time, Saru says, prepare for battle. And that is how we end this episode. So we're going to have to wait until next week to get the conclusion of all of this. And there are a lot of threads that need to be tied up in the finale. That's going to be a busy episode. I'm excited for it. This The cliffhanger here worked. I thought it was a really fun episode to watch, even with some of the, the things that we picked apart or things that we don't understand or that fell a little flat. I'm super jazzed to go into this finale. I feel like I'm riding that wave again that I lost with episode 11. And uh, and I'm sad that the season is ending. I feel very much the same. I, I know I was quite nitpicky about a lot of things, especially some of the, the storytelling moments in this episode. But on the whole, I enjoyed this episode and I am certainly invested in how this is all going to conclude. And I am feeling really intrigued by the moves here that I think are setting up for season three as well. And I, you know, I'm hoping to get some payoff about that in the next episode also. And I'm eager to just start thinking about what's in store for the future of this show and really what's in store for the future of this whole franchise. I would love for it to be like 26 episode seasons. (laughs) That would be nice. (laughs) You know, and I guess we are actually fortunate that they are, at least I think we expect anyway, I guess maybe we don't quite know, they are actually going to wrap up this story for us in the next episode. I never actually had to experience in real time what it was like to wait four months between those uh, Star Trek The Next Generation uh, two-parters that ended and began seasons. So I don't know how I would have actually dealt with that. And even at this point, just waiting the one week to get the second part of this finale is uh, is, is got me really, uh, really eager with anticipation. And so I think to, to soothe me over, Valerie, I'm going to need a cocktail. And I think it's about time... Mm. Then we have a time crystal based drink. What do you think? <laughs> time will tell. Oh God. Oh, <laughs> you, God. you started. Somebody it. stop us. Somebody <laughs> yeah, stop us. Build a time machine suit and go back in time and prevent these jokes from ever happening. Please. <laughs> well, um maybe not that creatively, but but pretty apt. The uh title of this drink is The Time Crystal. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a Glenn level name for a drink. I appreciate it. 
Well, I think it, it it needed that clarity of purpose for kind of the design of the drink. So what I really wanted to do was I wanted to try to match this blue uh, and and kind of crystalline aesthetic of the time crystal. Um, and we get that really emphasized in, in the last couple episodes. I thought that would be a really fun way to start conceiving of a drink. And the way that I went about it was incredibly fun for me. I hope it's fun for listeners. I did it with a little bit of science. Well, Spock loves science. Therefore, Spock will love this drink. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if he wants to come over and hang out and and drink it with me, I'm cool with that. I'm free every day, all day. Yeah, we'll see if we can get to him on Twitter. (laughs) Um, so for this drink, we're going to need a little kind of science magic that is the same science magic that, Glenn, you and I used when we first started making drinks together to make a Picard-themed cocktail. It's also the same science that was used on the recent episode of The Feast that we were Star Trek guest experts on. And I will link to that on the forum when I put up this recipe. But to start, what we're going to do is make some natural blue food dye, which involves boiling some red cabbage, getting rid of the cabbage part of it, and adding some baking soda to create a beautiful natural blue food dye. And with that, we're going to pour it into some ice cube trays and let it freeze so we have some blue ice. This is the most advanced cocktail that we have ever done on the show. I love it. I don't know about that. You've had some pretty complicated things. And we did have those uh, intricately carved uh, wax wings that were in accoutrement at one point. Um, but it's quite easy. There's lots of different ways to do it. But uh, but I'll put a little link uh, in the recipe. But we're just going to create some blue ice cubes using some natural blue coloring. No alcohol in that. Put that in the freezer. Get that going. The actual drink itself, I wanted to be clear or white. I didn't want to color it with um, any kind of colored liqueurs. I wanted that blue to shine through the drink when you add the ice at the end. So I was sticking to things that don't have a lot of color in them to begin with. So here's what we have in the drink. We have one ounce of mezcal. And I used a mezcal that I love very much that is actually pre-sweetened with a little bit of agave syrup. And it's a Del McGuay Crema de Mezcal brand. Again, I'll link to that. I think it's a little special. If you can't find that, you can add a little extra simple syrup to the drink or even some agave. So an ounce of that Mezcal, an ounce of triple sec, half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, And we're going to stir all that over regular ice, not the blue ice. Just stir it over regular ice. Get it into your glass. You're going to serve it in after you've stirred it and add the blue ice to it. There you're going to have this beautiful kind of white, clear drink with the thyme crystal blue coming through. And then once you've kind of presented that drink to yourself or to your friends or loved ones, you are going to pour over the top another half ounce of lime juice and stir that in. And what that's going to do is the acid from the lime juice is going to interact with the dye from the ice cubes and slowly turn this drink a beautiful red angel suit pink. I may actually love science now, too. This is very cool. And of course, Star Trek has a a fairly rich history of cocktails that change color when you do something to them. This is like Guinan's favorite trick in 10 Forward. So uh, this will be perfect. I will look forward to seeing Guinan making this cocktail in the uh, the Picard reboot. Uh, hopefully she'll give you credit for it. 
You could also just use regular ice, put all those ingredients in a cocktail shaker and have yourselves a delicious little drink. I also suggest garnishing it with a gardening knife that has blueberries speared on it. (laughs) Yeah, that's just so Saru will want to come hang out. (laughs) Well, now that we are really starting to think about ways to get Star Trek Discovery actors over to our homes for drinks, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and you can find us and our other creative science projects over at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. And please come on over to the Clay Temple forums. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Take up some of my complaints and critiques. Come explain time crystals to us. And if you make this drink, take pictures of the science in action. And until then, stay spacey.